So in this last episode of our series on generational wealth, we're going to talk about estate planning and wealth transfer. The big unlock here for most people is that they think of estate planning as a thing I do, where I go sit down with an attorney, I make some documents, we try to avoid taxes, and then we're done. Estate planning is not really that. It's really a journey, and it starts and it builds over time, and it's not just about taxes. It's about effectively moving your assets from your ownership into the ownership of your kids and your grandkids. In that way, estate planning is really about building the financial foundation for the future of your family. So it should be way more exciting than anything that involves going down and sitting um, in an attorney's office and doing documents. And so that's actually what we're going to talk about in this episode is wealth transfer and estate planning and wills and drafting documents and things like that are a part, a small part of that. Hello, and welcome to the Capital Stewards Podcast. Are you a professional who wants straightforward, trustworthy financial strategies that you can act on? Are you entering your highest income earning years and discovering that your personal finances are becoming too complex? We get it. You're a highly competent professional, but you don't have time to go deep on your personal finances the way you do with your day job. Hi, I'm Brian, and helping professionals make smart financial decisions is my passion. I run a financial advisory practice called the Capital Stewards, and work with professionals like you who are trying to cut through the noise every day. It's time to stop Googling every question you have about money and dive into some real professional guidance. So let's get moving. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Capital Stewards podcast. Today, we're in episode three of a three-episode series about building multi-generational wealth, and we're excited to be back to talk about transferring wealth for generational impact. You heard in the opener, Brian, talk about estate planning and the idea that that you know, people think about that as a one-time moment with an attorney. It's death and taxes. Oh, gosh. Such an um, inspiring really subject. Listeners, right? Yes. So you've probably thought about estate planning as, you know, what happens to your assets and resources after you're gone. But multi-generational wealth planning is about, like, building a legacy, not just about when you die. So let's go ahead and dive into the subject, Brian, where where should we start? So the first step in transferring wealth, right, because that's what we're actually trying to accomplish is wealth transfer, not simply estate planning or moving assets around. The first step is actually to engage in training your children and your grandchildren. So in the last episode, we talked a lot about managing wealth, training up the next generation of folks, and how to effectively build the next generation of wealth stewards for your family. So that's actually the very first place you want to start. Engage them in family business decisions. Engage them in working on charitable causes. Have them meet with your advisors. Have them meet with your investment folks, your estate planning attorney, CPAs, all that kind of stuff. And so that's step one. So if you haven't listened to that episode, check it out. It's the last episode, I think, in the in the podcast feed. We talked about it in much more detail and a lot of how-to things in there. So start there. So we're going to start, yeah. Yeah. So the first step when we actually start thinking about wealth transfer is to start young. And kind of dovetailing on what we talked about in the last episode, we want to start actually giving our kids assets that they control when they're younger. When your kids are young, give them assets in a budget instead of a blank check to cover all their needs. It makes them make hard decisions that build character over time. They won't always make good decisions, but they'll learn from their mistakes and they'll make smarter decisions as they inherit more assets and more responsibility down the road. I actually think starting prior to college and prior to college planning is a good idea. You can do that with allowances. 
buying their own stuff, even in middle school and high school, right? Make them get a summer job. They can work for you. They can work in the family business in some way. But they can also work somewhere else in the community, right? And all of those kinds of things are good ways for them to start earning money, managing money, living on a budget, all that kind of stuff. But if you haven't started already, I think planning for college is a really good opportunity to start this process. It's also conveniently a really good wealth transfer opportunity. You can start funding the 529 college savings plan for them and let them use those assets and, and the scholarships that they earn and their hard work to pay for college instead of just writing a check to cover tuition and all their living expenses every year. 529 plans can now be turned into Roth IRAs. I mean, there's some limits and some complexity around that, but it sort of eliminates this issue we had in the past where we had to sort of underfund the 529 plan because we didn't want there to be any money left over in there. Now, if we put money in a 529 plan and we end up not using it, it can move into a Roth down the road, which is a great asset for your kids to inherit. So you can start with a 529 plan and then you're funding the 529 plan. It grows over time. And then when your kids get to college, they decide where they're going to go to school and how they're going to spend the money that's in there and how they're going to deal with scholarships and their income and expenses and all those things. And this creates a really great sandbox. There's real incentives in there. There's a lot of real life hard decision-making that has to happen there. And so it's a great place for your kids to start making really significant decisions. And if you're really starting to think multi-generationally, um, you can overfund 529 plans and create sort of a family legacy 529 plan that'll pay for many, many generations of educational expenses because you can just keep rolling the beneficiaries forward, move money into Ross and things like that. So um, there's a nice tax play there too. But again, I think primarily the focus should be using this as an opportunity to put money aside give our kids a budget, and then have them make decisions about how they're going to invest for their own education and how they're going to spend their own educational dollars when, when the time comes for them to go to college. So I think it's a really great place uh, to start if you haven't already started training your kids. That's really cool. I didn't realize you could do that with a 529. So, so much of this episode thus far, Brian, and, and then the prior episode too, was about, you know, not just treating almost as like this as like a one-time transfer of wealth, but more of an ongoing approach to education okay. around, you know, building assets and multi-generational wealth and that being a journey and a process of education. We started off the episode as saying that estate planning is very similar to that. So talk to us about that comparison. Like, why is estate planning like a a journey and not just like a one-time event. So effective wealth transfer that's designed to truly mitigate estate tax liability, if you've um, got, generally, I, I think about it as if you've got more than 10 or $12 million, um, then that's something you should start thinking about. Your estate's probably not taxable um, until you get north of $20 million. But depending on how estate tax laws evolve and tax rates and things like that, you should probably start having some of those conversations You know, when you're kind of in that double-digit range. So if you've got a potential estate tax challenge, it requires planning over many years. And the training becomes really important because good estate planning is going to start to transfer significant assets to your kids in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, probably long before you're gone. They're going to have assets. They're going to have to manage those in their name. Annual exclusion gifts are, are one way that we start doing that. A lot That allows a married couple to give $34,000 now to each child and grandchild every year. I mean, over time, you can just imagine that can turn into hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars of tax-free gifts from an estate planning perspective. And so 
on this episode, we're not going to talk about every single tax mitigation strategy that's here because um, there are as many tax mitigation strategies as there are situations out there. But when you're thinking about creating trust or family partnerships or gifting strategies, all of those things work best over many, many years because there are limits to what you can do in any one year. So it's really important that you're training and engaging your family over time so that they'll be ready um, when it makes sense to start to lean into those kinds of strategies to transfer wealth uh, to the next generation. You know, one of the things that I hear about for families that are passing down wealth to their kids is almost this sense of like control mm-hmm. and trying to dictate how assets will be used mm-hmm. in the future. Sometimes it seems like that comes in different forms. There's things like foundations and trusts. Talk to us a little bit about like kind of what maybe some of those structures might be and you know, why someone might want to consider it. Sure. So oftentimes when we start talking about wealth transfer, we start talking about trust and legal entities and foundations and lots of complicated things. But all we're really doing in its most basic form is simply moving assets from being owned by a person, so maybe being owned by you, mom and dad, or grandma, grandpa, to being owned by um, a legal entity that has a specific purpose that you, as a person that's setting it up and funding it, create. And why do people do that? Uh, Sometimes we're doing that for tax reasons. There might be legal liability reasons. We might be trying to distribute family business assets across multiple people. And so we've got to put illiquid assets into a structure that we can use to pass out to different people. So there's lots of different reasons. And and there are as many trusts and different sort of uh, legal entities out there as there are people. But I I think what's important in in the context of this conversation is just when we start thinking about trusts and estates and sort of all this complexity around that, just think about that as moving assets from being in your name to being in the name of an entity that you control that's set up for a specific purpose. One of the things that boggles my mind about building multi-generational wealth is, you know, we're a couple, but we have three kids. And, you know, I hope that one day they have their own kids and that those kids have kids. And so how to manage this idea that like what you have will be amplified, but also divided. Yeah. And I kind of also thought that was the point of some of these tools. Absolutely. That can be the purpose of one of those tools. You'll often hear about family partnerships. Those are used in those kinds of contexts. Think about where you've built a family business or you've acquired a business and grew it, or perhaps you've got a real estate portfolio. It's hard to give one house or a piece of a family business or some property over here evenly to different kids or grandkids, and maybe you don't even want to do that, but it's just difficult to move those kinds of illiquid assets around. And so a lot of times those assets will go into a family partnership. And then just like you would buy shares in a company, what you're actually giving out to family members is shares of a legal entity or a trust, and that owns a business or real estate assets or um, even publicly traded securities can own a lot of different things. So partnerships are one way that we sort of get around that problem of, of having something that we can uh, pass out to folks when we need to do that. And maybe one form of entity that's worth talking about here is private foundations and charities. Those are entities that can be used to give money away, right? So if you want to do something that is impactful in your community, if you want to give money to your church, if you want to sponsor sort of ongoing research around the world in particular areas, charities and foundations can be a great tool um, to do that. We were talking earlier, I know you asked about the Gates Foundation and some of the things that you hear sort of in the in the modern press about family foundations. And that those are exactly, it's exactly what those types of entities are. There are ways for families to put money into charitable entities. Maybe you don't know exactly how you want to give the money away today, so you put it into a charitable entity today as part of an estate plan, as part of a wealth transfer process. 
And then your family members can sit on the board of that organization and can work on giving that money to charity over time, maybe in a way that's investing in you know things that are working on particular global issues or, or things like that. But one of the other things that we talked about earlier, though, that I think is important is you don't have to be Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or a Ford or a Rockefeller to have a family foundation and to have um, charitable foundations. So that kind of concept is not just for sort of super wealthy folks. And in particular, one thing I think is worth bringing up here is a concept of a donor-advised fund. Those are great options for charitable assets, especially if, if the level of assets that you have doesn't justify the administrative overhead of having your own huge family foundation. It's going to have a tax bill and a legal bill and attorneys and CPAs, and so you're going to spend thousands of dollars every year just sort of maintaining your own charitable trust or, or family foundation. But a donor-advised fund, sometimes in your community, it might be called a community foundation. It's really a sub-fund within a larger nonprofit. And that, that larger community foundation nonprofit is essentially set up so that they can manage all of that administrative overhead for folks that want to do charitable things in the community. And so you can just sort of put your money there. All of that administrative stuff is taken care of, and more of your money can go to those specific causes in the local community that you care a lot about. And a lot of times those foundations too will offer more services. So in addition to just providing the sort of basic level tax and accounting and all that sort of um, stuff that they have to do, they may help you vet organizations that are looking for grants and, and they have their own network of, of charities that they've worked with before. So they can really be a powerful partner in helping you have a really big impact on your community. So ultimately, the reason you said that you set up some of these tools, trusts, foundations, is about managing taxes and helping to maximize the number and sort of the quantity of dollars that you have going to the places that you want them to go. Talk to us a little bit more about mitigating estate taxes. Yes. uh, Reducing estate taxes is often um, a goal for families that have significant assets, right? You want your money to go where you want it to go, um, either into your community, philanthropic uh, interests that you have, or onto your kids so that they can do great things in the world. You don't want to pay more taxes than you owe. What I, what I always say is we want to pay all the taxes we owe, but we want to owe as little tax as possible. So like I said earlier, there's a lot of different strategies that we use to, to mitigate estate taxes. But I think there's two strategies that are unique in the estate situation that we see used commonly, whether you have tons and tons and tons of um, assets or whether you're you know just over the, maybe just over the estate threshold. And so I think maybe these are the two things that are worth bringing up here. So the first is actually permanent or universal life insurance. It's actually one of um, the only situations that I think is actually a useful application for life insurance. You've probably been sold life insurance by somebody at some point. Most of that stuff, in our view, is not actually helpful. It's not uh, a good investment. But life insurance, if it's structured properly in an estate tax situation, um, it's not included in your taxable estate, and it's not subject to taxes. So you might be able to pay premiums over time uh, from your taxable assets in exchange for a payout to family members or other entities down the road. And because that uh, transfer is outside of your estate, it's not subject to estate taxes. Um, So we don't sell life insurance, um, but it's worth asking your wealth advisor if you have a taxable estate how life insurance might be a tool that can help you minimize your estate tax bill. Are there any other strategies? And then the second strategy is known as a step up in cost basis. When you sell an asset that's increased in value during your life, you pay capital gains taxes on the profits. So if I buy a house for $10 and I sell it for $20, I have a $10 gain. And so if the capital gains rate is 20% and I have a $10 gain, 
then I probably got to pay $2 in taxes to the government. $2 uh, is going to the government? Um, okay. And if you think about your assets, if you've owned those assets for a really long period of time, or in particularly if you started a business and maybe grew that business successfully over a long period of time, almost all of that current value might be capital gain. Your cost basis might be a dollar or $2 a share or a dollar or $2 on something that is now worth significantly more than that. And so you might be talking about something like a 15 or a 20% haircut off the total asset value. However, when you pass away, if you just send those assets on to your kids, they get to treat them as if they are worth their current market value. Their cost of acquiring those assets is today's price as if they had bought them today on the open market. So if they turned around and sold them, they have no capital gain. So let's they play that can. out as a story. I yeah. buy a house for a dollar. Yes. That house is now worth a hundred dollars. That's right. My heirs, their acquisition price basically on that asset is a hundred dollars. That's right. So any capital gains that they would have to pay on that asset are off a hundred dollar base instead of a hundred or instead of a dollar base. Yeah, that's right. And if you sold that asset, say a few years before you passed away. Well, you're going to pay something like $19, right, in capital gains taxes. Um, so it'd be better to so, pass the asset to them directly exactly. and let them pay the capital gains. And is that what step up in basis means, which is a yeah. phrase I've literally never heard before? Yeah, that's why we have these episodes. That's, that is what a step up in basis, the cost basis, the tax basis is the... You guys that, can't see that. Brian. He, he's acting like you can see him, but he's making little air quotes when yeah. he says that. Yeah. Say, what? what are you... Basis. Tax basis. Tax basis. There you go. He has air quotes when he says so, it. So the point to take away here is that waiting to sell assets like family business shares, real estate, even stocks and bonds that are in your portfolio, when you're getting towards the end of your life, is a great way to avoid significant capital gains taxes. So just something to think about there. When we think about managing estate taxes, again, there's lots of different strategies. There are lots of different things that we can use in these situations. But I think two things that come up frequently are about using life insurance and then also waiting to get that step up in basis using air quotes and passing assets as opposed to dollars on your kids. So if I was a glamorous woman, you know, two or three times my age and not the glamorous least, woman that I am today in my mid-30s, and I had a big portfolio of real estate because I had been acquiring assets throughout my life. It would be better for me to kind of like continue to hold that real estate and pass it to my kids. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, it might be. So from a pure tax perspective, that would be true. There might be other considerations there. Diversification. You've got to look at the particular assets, right? I mean, if, if something is a bad asset, you know, you may just need to sell it, right? So I wouldn't say that the right answer for everyone is just to hold on to all of your assets until you die. But there's definitely... You know, but that definitely would be a consideration. So that kind of takes us a little bit, maybe, Brian, to this idea of managing our risk in an mix of assets. Again, I, we've been on this theme around diversification. Yeah. Kind of close the the thought there as we get to the end of this third episode in the series. Yeah. So the vast majority of investment and financial advice that's out there is targeted at individuals that are saving for their own retirement. And that's really good because that's what most people are doing take risk early and then reduce the risk as you age. Uh, if you've ever seen a target date fund, right, maybe your uh, business has target date funds for employees that are investing in 401k plans, or maybe you invested in target date funds before. Those funds have lots of stocks, they have lots of risk, then over time they buy more bonds, they take less risk. All of that is based on the theory that we are trying to save to some point in our 70s, maybe our 80s, and you know maybe we can have a philosophical conversation about what that is. But over time, we want to take 
less risk because we're going to pass away and you know we're going to have spent down our assets and our goals are achieved at that point. But when we're thinking about multi-generational wealth, we're not doing that. We're not just trying to support our own retirement over a 30-year trend over a 30-year period. We're trying to support our family over 50 years or over 100 years. We're trying to create a springboard for the next generation. So your investment strategy um, has to be closer to that of an endowment, which is pretty different than a normal retirement saver. Uh, that means you probably need to own more business equity and more stocks, fewer bonds, fewer sort of lower risk assets over the long term, even though you may be getting further along in life. And so your goals are different and your business and your investment strategy need to be different when you're thinking about multi-generational wealth as opposed to stuff that's just targeted at saving for retirement. So I think it's important for folks to sort of watch out for that and make sure that they're just not sort of blindly falling for the stuff that's out there in the press about investing if your goals are not really aligned with the goals of folks that they're really talking to. Awesome. I think we, we've covered some really great material here. Help us synthesize down everything that we've talked about in this you know, third episode of our series. Yeah, so I think the first thing is engage with your kids in training. Um, and you want to start really young. Uh, have them uh, own assets and use budgets and make financial decisions uh, when they're young. We talked a little bit about college planning um, and about how, that, how that's a really good way to start if you haven't already uh, started doing that at that point. Um, estate planning is a journey. It's not an event. This is kind of the second thing that we started talking about. And so it's important when we're training our kids up because we're going to start transferring assets over many, many, many years. We're going to start transferring assets along that journey earlier in the process. So that training becomes really important. And that is how we effectively mitigate estate taxes in a lot of uh, scenarios. Uh, speaking about tax mitigation, um, uh, we talked about a couple of strategies there and we, we said there's lots of them, but um, two in particular around life insurance and then waiting to get a step up in basis. So those are potential things to think about. Uh, we talked a little bit about charitable foundations and how you don't have to be a Ford or a Rockefeller to have a charitable foundation. A donor advice fund might be a really good solution, um, even if you just have a few hundred thousand dollars um, that you want to be invested um, in charity in your community over time. And then we kind of closed out around risk management um, just thinking about how your goals as a multi-generational investor are not the same as folks that are simply saving for retirement. And so you need to invest differently, um, more like an endowment, less like a normal retirement saver. So there's some real differences in how you should invest over uh, long periods of time. Awesome. Thanks so much for recapping for us, Brian, this episode. We've got three awesome episodes in this series where we kind of started out with their most foundational information about building multi-generational wealth. Then we talked about engaging the kids and getting them along in the journey. And this last episode has been more about managing those assets through t throughout time, estate planning, managing taxes, those kinds of things. So if you haven't gone through and listened to all three episodes, highly encourage that you do that and start from episode one of this series. We'll see you next time. We will see you next time. Commentary provided is for general audiences and educational purposes only. It should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice for your specific situation. That's why you should talk to a professional. Hello. Past performance of market results is no assurance of future performance. All the information on the podcast has been obtained from sources we deem reliable as of the date of this recording, but it's not guaranteed.